You're listening to the Beat Motel Zine podcast, and we need to warn you that we use words like shit, bollocks, scrotics, fuck, anarcho-syndicalist, and cunt, and we don't normally beat those words out, apart from the word cunt, because we're not total animals. Now, we know as well as you that your children can hear these words on any street in Britain, possibly any street anywhere in the world, but we also appreciate that you may not want to invite these words into your home if you have children or sensitive pets nearby whilst listening to this podcast. So listener discretion is advised. That being said, if your children aren't allergic to hearing words like fuck, shit, buttocks or hind penis, they might learn something from listening to this podcast, although probably not because the quality of our educational content is quite poor. So there you go, fuckers, buckle in and let's get started. Now, why can't we say the word camp? Camp? Um, because we, 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 we're not taking any sponsorship from coffee companies. Okay, sure. I tried to make some wine out of camp coffee once. And the, uh, the demijohn blew up and we had to get rid of the carpet in the bedroom. <laughs> it was not a problem. Why were you doing it in the bedroom? Whilst <laughs> <laughs> oh. your wife tried to sleep. I could try and say those noises weren't from me, which they usually were. Uh, right, listeners, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll see that I am at home today. And for a slightly Father Ted kind of reason, uh, you know, in Father Ted, when they have visitors and they say, oh, there's a storm brewing, you'll have to uh, you'll have to stay because they take the roads in when the weather gets bad. <laughs> I'm in Ipswich, which is exactly a tiny town, um, but there's taken the a bridge. They've taken the roads in. There's a bridge called the Orwell Bridge, which goes over the river, and they shut it when the, the weather gets a bit rare and the whole, the whole town grinds to a halt. Now, I walk to work, so I normally just get that smug feeling of seeing all the gridlocked cars going, ha, ha, ha. But it's also windy, and my wife is worried I might get squashed by a tree, um, which could happen, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had a few windy storms around here, um, and... Uh... Occasionally, you do go past something, and a tree has uh, decided to uproot and move, and found that it actually doesn't have uh, very sturdy legs and just falling over. <laughs> what a beautiful way of describing it. <laughs> well, where where I am in Suffolk, uh, listener, this this is the Beat Motel podcast, and we are going to talk about music. I promise. Where I live in oh, yeah. Suffolk was all forest when I was a kid, and I woke up in 1987, and it had all become heath. Literally, like it all just blew down overnight. Um, there's in like, there, yeah, there's a park in the uh, park and home where my mum lives. Um, giving away too much personal information, uh, but there's but, yeah, don't yeah. dox your own mum. We, uh, my friends, my friends said there was a park, uh, that's now sort of playing fields, but I think they're playing fields. I've never actually been in the park despite living in home for eight years, nine years, um, but. Uh, yeah, they said it was a forest, and then overnight, wow. just it cleared. It, it was cleared wild. Out. We didn't have electricity or running water or anything for like two and weeks. And then after the storm, you got it. Yeah, well, then that <laughs> after the storm, um, the the government decided to invest in Suffolk and give us running water. You joke, <laughs> you joke, but my my bandmate. Um, Gareth from These Are End Times I, he, he got married a few years ago to one, one of my really good friends and instead of having a stag do we went to go and see we took him to see Kieran Leonard um, you know Kieran Leonard really good but he was horribly hung over when we saw him so it wasn't that good but he lives in the arse end of nowhere in Suffolk and I dropped him off and there's roadworks everywhere and I said oh what are they doing Find, finally giving you sewers and he went yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like four or five years ago like obviously they had septic tanks but like yeah, yeah, finally finally getting sewers wow 
right, he's probably going to listen to this and then message me and go, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you well, know, we, 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 we encourage letters. So, yeah, please please do ask what the fuck we're um, we do, we do have, um, we've got a letter to read later from Mr. Arthur Spite. And it's not an AI letter. It's, it's an actual, it's an actual letter that not only has someone sent in, they've made a PDF of it to send in, which seems like, I don't know. It just seems sort of strangely pedantic that, Mr. no, it needs to be a document, not, Mr. not Arthur, just. Mr. Arthur, is this a real, do you, do you know this person? I think I know who it is, but it says Mr. Arthur Spite, Seven Lambs Death Cottages. <laughs> Chertsey. God, no, look, we'll come to this. We'll come to this. We need to talk about music first. So sure, sure, let, sure. let's start off with Riff of the Week. So here is Dr. Sam's Riff of the Week. You filthy bastard! You got to wiggle your eyebrows for that one. That's that's ridiculously cool. That's that's one of the most joyous things I've heard for at least the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's awesome. That baseline is just bonkers. You know, the last uh, episode about drummers, I said that death metal drummers, uh, black metal drummers, should always get paid double. I think that bassist should get paid double. Well, I mean, I was thinking about this about the when, after we did the bass riff ones. I always sort of. I call them. I, I, I sort of think of them as like a fusion bass riffs, um, and they sort of heavily they lay heavily in punk, but they're also very influenced by, I guess, sort of jazz, not punk, funk, uh, and they they also exist in jazz. This is, um, say, the the band is a Japanese jazz fusion band called Cassiopeia. The song, the sound is uh, Cassiopeia. Yeah, the, I, used uh, to, I used to have a, a, a in the nineties. I had a little personal organizer. It was called made by Casio. Hmm. It's called a Cassiopeia. Hmm. I think there's got to be some overlay because uh, Casio is. I mean, I don't really. Yeah, and that just came on, and it was like it reminded me of uh, both Tower of Power, What Is Hip, which is again one of the great, I'd say, fusion baselines. Uh, even if it is sort of within the funk genre, but also, and I'd say this about the same thing as one of the greatest British bassists ever uh, was uh, Ian Durian, the Blockheads bassist. I can't remember his name, but "Hit Me with Your Rhythm Stick" is the same sort of bass. Oh, you're right. You're you're absolutely spot on. That's lovely. Anyway, thank thank you for bringing that into my life. I'm going to play something completely different. Master, the Acer. Loss is the ghetto dweller trapped in the cage. There's no way out of the death trap. You can't come back. No matter what you do when you fall in a death trap. You can't come back. No matter what you do when you fall. Time and time again, life's getting shorter. Fear in the air, what appears at the border. I had to stop it there. Now, listeners, we, we can only use 30 seconds. That's not 30 seconds because a word came up that's too spicy even for, for me to put in the uh, in the podcast. But that was... Do you want to have a guess, Sam? 
Hindvag? Is that the word? Forvag. Not Hindvag. No, that's the Gravediggers with Death Trap. Now, Gravediggers absolutely fascinate me. I put that on because I'm the third series of the Wu Tang saga is just it's just brilliant. They're just constantly outdoing themselves. And the Gravediggers I discovered way before Wu Tang, and I still don't really understand where they fit in the story because that album was recorded before the first Wu-Tang album, and it's not a Wu-Tang album, but it's got RZA on it. And I don't know which one of those rappers is RZA. So if anyone listening can tell me which parts on... uh, I can't say the word of the album. I'm going to give you the sanitized American version of the album. The the first album is called Six Feet Deep. Well, the American version is called Six Feet Deep. The, The version of that album that was released everywhere else is a word I can't say and won't say, followed by Mortis. Oh, uh, oh, oh, okay. Fair enough. That's that, but yeah, beyond the pale, that word. Uh, Wait, well, it's it's not it's quite not literally my... for pale people. It's beyond the pale. Hey, it's not my place as a as a cisgender white guy to decide what is and isn't the right language for anyone. But I I choose not to say that word anyway. Without wishing to get too deep, I just played that just because I'm absolutely loving the Wu Tang saga, and the more more music you expose me to sam the more i appreciate just how deep deeply entrenched you know entwined funk and soul is with with hip-hop especially that kind of very early 90s hip-hop because that that's just the funk with a little little noises in the background oh yeah well you know the whole um what's it called uh the whole um dr dre sort of world was they call it g-funk and Ah. That comes from P-Funk, as in Parliament oh, Funk. Man. I never put two and two together. That's so obvious now that you said it. Yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah. Um, and, yeah. And I've just bought some Parliament albums, so I'm going to be listening to that live tomorrow. Cool. Uh, Gravedigger is also Prince Paul, who producer uh, Soul to Soul. Do I mean Soul to Soul or do I mean De La Soul? I think I mean De La Soul. Soul to Soul were British, weren't they? Right, this is going down the shitter fast. So, tell us what the theme for this week's episode is. It's live albums, and it's. Uh, I think we both started out going uh, when we first thought this idea of like, oh, what's the point of a live album? And this is the question we're trying to ask, and we're trying to answer today in a um, pseudo academic way. But what is the point of a live album? Because for the fucking sake of me, I can't figure out what the point of a rock live album is everything else um but i mean at least a rock live album that doesn't change things significantly uh for that band because there is a potion for uh god that's such a punk, punk rock word um there is a thing for rock bands to replicate what they do on the studio live now that is not necessarily the case for a lot of other musical traditions. I completely agree. I mean, the original episode title for this episode, and we haven't come up with a, a final title yet, but the original title I wrote down was Why Live Albums Can Fuck Off. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, yeah. I've never, I've never, have you ever listened to the Against Me one, talking about our favourite subject? I will hold fire on commenting on that for now, for reasons that may become obvious. But I, I saw it, it. It happens for me with a live experience as well, because there are some bands who 
who I love on record and I love seeing live because they 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 can be quite different experiences. But the first time I saw, or the only time I saw Iron Maiden was at Reading Festival, and I can remember standing there thinking, "This is completely pointless," because it sounded so much like a CD that there yeah. was I just I didn't I still don't get Iron Maiden, which is probably appalling a lot of people. Years ago, years ago when they first came out, there was a band called Goat. They're Swedish mm-hmm. sort of. I, I like Goat. Yeah, they were psych- They are. They were at least like a psychedelic, uh, Afro blues, uh, heavy sort of, you know, groovy band. And me and a few friends really liked their first album. Really liked it. And um, they were playing, and it sounded on record. It sounded pretty like unhinged and pretty out there. And we went to see them, and they played everything note for note. And it wow, just ruined, really? it ruined this illusion of um, the it ruined the illusion for me. I wanted to see this band wig out, and they I'm, didn't. I am genuinely they, surprised. They they played everything straight. It was you know, and um, that's not what I wanted to see. That's not at all what I wanted to see. When you go to see bands. You know, you go and see a punk band for a different reason than you would go and see, say, uh, a psychedelic band. And one of the reasons you're going to see a psychedelic band is because you want to see them, you want to see what they do. Um, And you go to a punk gig because, not because you want a 10-minute version of the song that you love, you go to see the punk band because of the intensity of the experience. Mm. Uh, That is supposed to be very immediate. Now, the psychedelic band you go because you want to sort of or at least is my thinking you go and you want to see what actually happens when they are not aiming for that sort of translation of the studio yeah i, I agree entirely I, i'm shocked about that with goat though they are kind of what i call six music famous now yeah I'm always, I, always chuffed when they come on the radio but i i just assume live they'd just go on some sort of sonic dirty journey so so did yeah so did uh how long ago was it because maybe they're different now i do like this is when when their first album came out and this was at the camden uh what's it called uh electric ballroom oh wow Uh, cool venue and it was packed absolutely packed and i just i can't remember walking away from a gig as you know it's like you don't go and see it's like we've talked about before. You don't go see you know Dinosaur Junior because you want to see the tunes exactly replicated as oh, they God are. Man. You want to see Jay Mascus do what he does. That was one of the weird things when we saw television playing Marky Moon live. Well, for one thing, Tom Verlaine did not want to be there, but it was <sighs> note for note. And television, they 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 used to go on journey so often that there is more than one version of their first album. And I've mentioned the one of the alternative versions that I've heard before, which is fucking awful. It's just Tom Verlaine, <laughs> like all over it with his guitar. But right, so so that we can structure this podcast in some way, shall I play your first choice? Do uh, do yes, do do. I shall do. Would you like to introduce it, or shall I just? No, play I'll it? Sh- I'll introduce the do do afterwards. Afterwards, because people might get why I keep saying doo-doo. Well, also, I think if you explained who this was at the start, I think it would it would take away from some of the joy of it. Oh. 
just got to say, just before we do, no income tax, no VAT, no money back. That's <laughs> right, <laughs> so I'll start that again. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Sam. Who is that? That is Jello Biafra and the New Orleans Ranch and Soul All Stars. I so many questions. I mean, we could do. We've got the listener. We have this list of like episode ideas, and comedy punk rock covers was one that I think we deleted fairly on because it's just too fucking obvious. But Jello Biafra, no, don't mess. My no, no, that that is so far out out of that and the reason is because there is there's so much more to it than just hey lads with guitars or you know people with guitars playing a song you know it's he's what do you put together a band i love the name of well, it ranch the, and soul looking, like food yeah. and so like ranch the, the album is called uh a, is it the album a walk on gentle splinters and they describe it as the long rumored sweat soaked and you can you listen to the album, you, you get a sense of how sweaty and hot it was. I'd go uh, see that. Yeah, I'd love to see this. The long rumored sweat soaked live album from the night Bill Davis from Dash Rip Rock and Fred LeBlanc from Cowboy Mouth dared Jello Biafra to join them on uh, join them during Jazz Fest and sing all classic New Orleans soul rhythm blues and at Jello's request garage songs. Joining in on piano were Wild Man Pete Wet Dog Gordon from Mojo <laughs> Nixon, <laughs> Pepper Keenan from Down and Corrosion of Conformity, and oh, a what? wacky horn section from Egg Yolk Jubilee and Morning 40 Federation uh, that even includes a sousaphone. And it is, um, there's one of the greatest. Uh, he steals it. He admits he steals it. But one of the greatest um, uh, finishes to a song when he goes, save your applause for someone who needs it. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like, I, I, I love Jello Biafra, but I don't think the man's made a really good album, frankly, since um, the stuff with uh, the industrial stuff he did in the 90s. Uh, in the early 2000s, I guess, uh, what they called, um, what's that band? Lard. Lard, yeah, I, lo- I really like Lard. Um, but he, and that was the best stuff he had done since the, the Dead Kennedys. And the stuff he's done recently of his own stuff is just, for me, it's fallen flat. Even the stuff with the Melvins was a bit flat for me. Um, there was a good song here or two or there, but it was just, a, and then you hear him just sort of letting loose and enjoying himself and not thinking about things. And just it sounds like the greatest time. And it doesn't matter if these guys are in tune. It doesn't matter if they're playing perfectly. It doesn't matter what the quality of the solos are. It just sounds like a, the greatest time you could that, have. That is a, a really good argument for live albums. If they're capturing something that isn't going to be captured in the studio, then that that what a fantastic argument. And I love so much about that. When I first heard it, I didn't notice how kind of sloppy it was. Yeah. I just thought 
But what I thought, right, it's cool. Jello Battery's got together a band of people who know how to do, you know, the sort of the Southern American good time music kind of thing. But the fact there's got members of corrosion of conformity in there just makes it okay. This is this is great. And oh god, I I it's death in a podcast to talk about things you've done, I think, because this isn't all that gonzo, unlike the, our live episodes. But I formed a band called The Mayflies once, and the idea was that we there'd be like 10 of us and we'd do a tour without rehearsing and play something different every night. And we did two or three gigs and it's fucking awful. <laughs> just, the last gig we did, we entered a, a battle of the bands at a local nightclub that was sponsored by Pringles. And the worst thing was we didn't even get any Pringles. <laughs> but that, that would be the, the least the rider could provide <laughs> it was also when the the smoking ban had just come in and they they hadn't yet figured out that nightclubs smelt of sweat and stale beer oh man I, well there was a club in brighton that um yeah the week the smoking ban came in I went to, on one Saturday, like consecutive Saturdays, I went, and over the week, I think the Monday, the band must have come in or something, and this was a, a venue that had a language school youth hostel above it, <laughs> and they had a disagreement with who was responsible for cleaning, uh, paying the cleaners for the bathroom, oh, and during this time, the bathroom flooded, and so the place just... So there was a point where you went, okay, just bring back the fucking cigarette smoke, please. This is all <laughs> just a mask. Oh man, I don't what... remember what I was. I don't remember what gigs I was seeing. I just know that I probably was standing in my week old piss whilst I was having a piss. How how have how have toilets at venues never got any better? And I exclude local ones here because, uh, honest to God, the toilets, in, uh, the venues in Ipswich, because we've got a couple of new venues, they are beautiful. I always mention them in the reviews. But I can remember going to – the garage was always particularly bad. I can remember seeing Pelican and Cave in at the, at the garage, and I walked into the men's toilets, and it was literally like ankle-deep in piss and toilet roll and just shit floating around. You're like, you know, I paid my ticket price, and – uh, just how? How are things that bad? Well, I mean, yeah, the only takeaway I can ever get was like from this sort of stuff is I just hope that the bands and the staff who weren't cleaning the toilet were paid well enough. Oh. <laughs> because fuck those, the people. I mean, yeah, I don't, I, I don't. Let's not, let's move on. Let's, let's, let's move on from shit on the floor at gigs. Yeah. Um, right. So, my first choice. Now, as as we said earlier, the original idea of this was to say how rubbish live live albums were and my first choice was going to be something off the thin lizzy live album because sam you you must know the story of the the thin lizzy live album well yeah um it makes an interesting argument of what a live album actually is um what made that unusual as a live album um but the i don't know how much there's debates about how much was re-recorded in the studio some say every single guitar solo was. Some say everything was. Some say um, just bits and pieces were. But there's a debate around. And some say the bass was re-recorded because Phil Lynott wanted to sound uh, sharper as well. The, um, the bonkers thing is that one one rumour is that the first thing that was replaced was the drums. I mean, talk about the hardest thing to, to replace in any recording. Pre-Pro pre Tools and pre-Digital, the way you recorded in a studio was... But you weirdly, essentially... 
weirdly it's gone down it's, it frequently is up there as one of the greatest rock live albums i've got a horrible thing to reveal to you sam and i had to learn this the hard way most music fans don't give a fuck <laughs> it's only the real geeks and the musicians who actually care about this stuff so if you're <laughs> listening to this one of us one of us <laughs> i mean there's a point to be made like I mean, but there's two different points here. There's like, what is a good, you know, what, what's an enjoyable music experience? And it doesn't really matter what how that musical experience is put together. It doesn't matter if it's live or studio or whatever. If it's a good musical experience, it doesn't take away from what, from the joy of it. But the categorization of it, there is an aspect to that that does matter. You know, you are buying into, when you buy a live album, you're buying into the fantasy of, um something live and i'll just prove the point by doing this i bought this today just now i went to my friends and i bought this parliament mm -hmm. live and the reason i bought it is because i've just got to um, say to people who aren't watching on youtube sam's holding up pictures uh, holding up records um, that could, could not look more 70s funk that album cover yeah, unfortunately, I don't know where the full colour poster and iron-on t-shirt transfer are. Iron-on t-shirt? Oh, it came with an iron-on t-shirt transfer? That is... <laughs> oh, man, record industry's really let go of itself, hasn't it? <laughs> Shit. That we bring back iron-on transfer. Oh, God, I want to do that. I really want to do that now. Also, can I... I think it's a promo version, because the corner's cut up. Oh, but... oh man, that's... God. There is all kinds of things flooding back to. I used to love buying. I used to look for the albums that had the corner punched out. I had a hole drilled in them, or all, all sorts. Yeah, of yeah, to sort of destroy the the the. Um, a lot of the time, it would be through the barcode. Uh, but um, apparently, a lot of these albums. It's quite an interesting. I might try and see what I can dig up about this. But apparently, in the the loads of American records that didn't sell got imported into Finland. Um, so this is just like American back catalogue that this guy sort of went over uh, and just went, okay, you guys aren't selling more of this. I'll take it off your hands. And and so you got like the whole, like Finland was flooded with, um, yeah, 70s funk records. Because um, funk is quite a big thing here. And, you know, it's not the uh, funkiest population, shall we say. Um, and... Um, <laughs> But you know, you you buy into this because you want to you want to know what the experience was like. At least, yeah. at least get a hint of it. At least get a hint of it. And you know, we can't we can't put back uh, George Clinton back into his heyday because the man's He'd amazing. Die. But he's 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 on he's doing his best. He's doing his best. I, he's, he's one of those people. I'm amazed he's still alive. I'm very pleased he is. But wow. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, waffle, waffle, waffle. Right, so my first choice. So we we were we were originally talking <laughs> we originally talking about how shit stuff is, and then I thought, you know what? Each time I was trying to think of things that I thought were crap crap examples, I just kept thinking of things that I think are great and rock and roll bands who do do things slightly differently. And I'm not talking about making the intro a bit a bit longer. I I nearly picked a track from a Queens of the Stone Age live album called Out of the Woods and Through Them, something or other. 
and Queens of Stone Age Live, you see them are great. They're, they're such a tight band. But on this live album, they like almost unnecessarily elongated the intros to each songs. And I was like, okay, well, that is interesting, but it just gets to the stage where like song 15, you're like, oh, another noodly start. But this band kind of does the complete opposite. That went slightly over 30 seconds, but I'd like to think Fat Mike won't do us in. That was... Well, Sam, you must know who that is. Is that No Use for a Lag, by <laughs> No Use for a Lag, <laughs> bastard. No <laughs> Use for a Name with Outside. And I chose that because we were talking about that beat, actually, that 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 beat, that one, yeah. in the last episode. And I chose that because... I fucking love that live album and I probably listen to that more than I do their recorded stuff because the the energy they've got is so good. Um, I was given a copy of it. I mentioned before that there was a zine called um, Real Overdose run by Wolfie from The Stupid. In fact, Mike used to send him boxes of CDs to give to his friends. And when that came out, I got one of those for free. It's like, oh, Fat, fat Mike. I imagine he called him Mike. I don't know. If, if you're on first name terms with Fat Mike, you call him Fat Mike. Well, you probably still Mike. call him Fat Mike. You probably call <laughs> just call him fat. Hi, fat. Um, I think sorry, some people call him fatty. Fatty. I've amused myself there, which is which is a rubbish thing. Um, but as Wolfie gave it to me, he said, "Listen to, prepare to hear a live album recorded on better gear than you will ever see, let alone own." <laughs> which slightly took the dent out of punk rock at the time for me. But there, I chose that particular bit because the singer on that isn't as far as i know in a band or has ever been in a band that's the the um god what's her name it's the no effects drummer's wife sarah sandin that's it smelly's wife and her her vocal performance on that is just fantastic it's wonderful really nicely held note and then she just starts fucking around with it by kind of you know dropping it a little bit and i just chose that because i think it's joyous Oh, no, no. I, you know, that's exactly the same. I think this is what's going to come out of these live albums is sort of like a well-captured gig is really... Uh, and this is the thing about punk rock, I think, a lot of the time is the you go for the energy. You don't go because you want to see this 10-minute version of a song you love. You go for the energy of the band that is hinted at at the recorded album. Mm. But, you know, it's... it's uh, yeah. Um, so you're going for that sort of like thing. Let's swing the dial quite far the other way and go with your next choice. Sure. If we were both 16 years old, Sam, and we were at a friend's party when everyone else had gone home and the last few people 
that's sitting up. We're experimenting with marijuana. And you put that on. I'd probably <laughs> say something like, oh, is this guy ripping off Harmar Superstar? <laughs> I think I'd probably just if I was if I was that stoned, I'd probably just start crying. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's Otis Redding. I've been loving you too long. That uh, is just that's incredible. And, God, I'm actually a bit emotional. Wow. Yeah, and you know the reason I chose this is sort of a this is sort of a building on my choice of Sam Cook from last week, and I decided I couldn't go with Sam Cook twice because. I know we're not we're not repeating ourselves that much this much, um, but so I got interested in this album because this is Otis Redding with his tour band, and a lot of the time, what these soul singers did in the sixties was they would take they would hire the the top band live band at the time, so they would hire Aretha Franklin's band a lot of the time because she had the best of the best touring band. But the thing is, if you play with someone. As in, if you gig with them and you go on tour with them, you get tight and nuanced with those musicians in a way that you're not going to do with hired hands. And um, that, and Sam Cooke's album sort of shows that sort of, I'd say intensity that you could get with, with and sort of knowledge of how to emphasize things in, uh, and nuance things um, together when you are a really tight live unit. And... Um, yeah, and it doesn't always have to be, when you're doing live, it doesn't always have to be 100 miles an hour. Um, having it, having the, the the confidence and grace to perform like that. Yeah. Because yeah, they would have known they'd been recording. I mean, something that I knew would come up during this conversation is the fact that one of the things I really don't like about live albums is where they record three or four gigs and then sort of splice them together. And I was really disappointed that NoFX did that with their last out live album. I think, come on, like, you know, out of all bands, NoFX, are they not the band that should just give it to you how it is? But then I thought, they can do what the fuck they want. <laughs> Who am I to, to tell them what they could do? If they want to do it, do it. Which is uh, the whole, the whole, I'm trying to sort of formulate a, an ego death of music elitism. But I, I, I'm not going to because it's quite fun. Well, the thing is, that the thing is that I sort of get it because there's an aspect where, in my recording experience, is that the, uh, the my position is the best I've ever played the songs I either cover songs or the songs I've written has been in an audience to the band itself. The recording, getting the best take of a recording, getting the best take of a live thing. It's like when you're conscious, there's something that switches in one, the brain. And I don't think it's just me. There's something switches in the brain when you turn that recording sign on. You become yeah. so much more self-conscious about um, that process of what you're doing. And you, you know, and, and so you want to be so much more uh, on, on it than when you're just having fun in the rehearsal room and you're just relaxed and you're just in the moment with your friends. The minute you get on stage, the minute you go into a recording studio, the minute you press that recording button or you're performing for someone else other than the people who are there in the music with you, it changes how you perform that stuff. It absolutely does. And I don't think it's just musician bullshit. I, I'm a bit more relaxed when recording now because I've done it. 
so much more and the time constraints aren't there that used to be there you used to go into a studio and we'd be paying i don't know 400 quid a day with early end times when we we're recording and you know that is a lot of money that's a lot of money to 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 anyone so you don't have time to get it wrong especially if we have to record completely live and we recorded a couple of tracks for um the, the label we're on put out a thing called caveat emptor and we did a couple of tracks for it and we had a really amazing violinist at the time who was in dead rat orchestra a guy called dan merrill who will be he'll be on this podcast at some point and the vibe was so cool when we played we had two days in the studio one day for recording and basically another day for a few overdubs and, and mixing and whatever and we played this performance which i actually managed to film some of and it's on vimeo somewhere but it was everything was right the vibe was right we were relaxed we were joking around with we everything was perfect i got into the studio the next day and they went yeah sorry there's a real problem with your bass track you're gonna have to re-record it and i had to sit by myself with the engineer in the control room not even going into an amp just going into a little emulator and just like fucking killed me oh i, hate, well, I absolutely hated it i hated it. that performance i gave would, would have been um accurate but wouldn't have had any of the performance nuances and you there is with bass it's bullshit with bass no you nobody who's played bass can can rightfully claim that you're just playing the notes you're not there's so much bending and micro timing changes and that's that's all from your heart there was um i have a similar thing um this i call it the my lost bass my lost bass solo um <laughs> sorry we we were recording emotional i just laughing at you <laughs> we were recording the, 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 so we my band back in bryson piss resistance we had started recording an album um and um we uh and it was all on hard drive and this doesn't happen with tape and overnight the hard drive uh with all the raw files so all the unmixed stuff was just overnight just went kaput and it wasn't backed up uh properly. i think i'd be sick i think you know people go, oh, I'd be sick. Before, i think i would actually vomit <laughs> the day before we've been doing bass pieces and me and me and the guitarist lawrence and mark the producer engineer I uh, spent loads of time trying to get the right. We wanted, we were like being really sort of, me and Lawrence are quite over the top when we, with, with what we want from our sound. So we're going, okay, you know, let's, how does, how does, what is the bass on like Super 8 by Lee Perry? How does that work? How does that sound? How do we emulate that? How's that reference? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so we were going, okay. And, I could not get the baseline right, and then I did it, and I got you know it was sort of a mixture of it wasn't really a solo, but it was a mixture of sort of really sloppy but still on it uh, stuff. And I remember all of us just going, "Yep, yeah, that's it, that's fantastic, save, let's go to the pub." And why wouldn't you back it up? I I know this story because I've known you for he, so long. He, he, the backup failed. It was something like that, and the man, Mark, Mark, to his you know credit, was really upfront about it and really owned it. And he, we tried at one point to re-record the album, but we were such a Lawrence is a perfectionist, and also he's like uh, he does, he's got a very specific Jackson Pollock in his head when he plays guitar, and it takes a lot of time a lot of effort to get that stuff so we just 
sort of burnt out on uh, trying to re-record it. It was I'm I'm still a bit like it's like uh it's like it's it's like your first like your first love breaking up with you whilst giving you um a handy pleasure <laughs> <laughs> and not finishing and not finishing. I've got something to tell you, darling. And it you know, you've got something to tell you, darling. I'm not, I'm not leaving. finishing. <laughs> I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. Just what walk now? off. Oh man! Yeah. God, this 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 episode's gone gone in quite a fascinating direction. Right, next track. As brilliant as that was, I'm going to play the next track. And guess what? It's against me. So you that have listened against... to that album then? That's probably like the second or third time I've heard anything of it. That is against me with turn those clapping hands into angry bald fists with their contractually obligated live album called Americans Abroad. And I chose that because I genuinely think that bit's great. That that does remind me, and I've not listened to this album since it came out, that does remind me of some of the moments in Against Me where the two guitarists start to become, so Laura Jane James start to become equal and almost dueling with each other and just this wonderful harmony. But I also included it because of that whole thing of the contractually obligated album, because that, that was them getting final, like finishing a deal with fat, wasn't it? With fat well, wreck. I've read, I've read, um, and my mind is, I'm going to spread rumors because if, well, no one listens to us anyway, so not really. <laughs> uh, I'm, I read about this, and I'm not. It, is, it was, I think, both can contractually obligated, but it was also like a thank you as well. Oh, really? Because you know they were about to sign to a major, and they they were the biggest selling band uh, at the time, I think, on Fat Wreck, or what? At least one of the biggest selling bands on Fat Wreck. And um, this is sort of half remembered stuff that I read from. Uh, the book Sellout by Dan Ozzy. Um and I got the impression that it was yeah it was contractually obligated they had they had said to Fat Wreck they'd do the album but then they were getting so much shit from people in the so-called underground that they said what the fuck fuck you let's just go and if you're gonna call if you if you're gonna make our lives this hard we're gonna might we we might as well sell out sort of thing um, and um, they were getting into like fist fights and car parks over the over signing to Fat Wreck. Yeah. And the shit they just did not deserve. And they produced two stunning albums on Fat Wreck and studio albums. But it was also a thank you because that album was gonna sell. And it's gonna sell and it's gonna be it was like, here's some stuff that you can put out Fat Wreck and make some money on. That's also an aspect of it. There's one thing I'm just going to drop in and then move on. Uh, I interviewed Laura Jane the day after recording, after they recorded that. But moving on, uh, the I sent you a message, Sam, 
a little while ago about a podcast episode I'd heard. And I'm going to try and link to it in the show notes because it's a podcast called After the Deluge, which I only discovered a couple of weeks ago. And the host does a series, but the series is based on an album and uh, or a band, really. And he's doing Against Me at the moment. And the first episode is Crime... Oh, crap, what's it called? Crime and the... Shitting hell, I lost my thread there. The first, it's about the first Against Me release. I'm going to have to look it up because it's really going to irritate me if I don't. Sure. If I don't get its title, Crime as Forgiven by. Yeah. Uh, by Against Me, and he he has a guest. He has Frank Turner, who he turns out to be a massive, not just Against Me geek, but Gainesville. Florida punk geek, which wasn't a massive surprise, to be honest. But it's well worth listening to that episode. For one thing, Frank Turner is engaging, intelligent, and always has something nice, you know, interesting to say. He doesn't just trot out the same platitudes that you get from from a lot of a lot of people. The host is really good, really knows his stuff, but they talk the reason I'm mentioning it is they talk in depth about how unfair the treatment of Against Me was by pretty much everyone. And Frank Turner's argument, I don't want to give it away, but part of Frank Turner's argument is that basically they, they took one for the team. They they were bloody-minded enough just to carry on and carry on and carry on, and now people don't give a shit. Well, it's interesting, because I think, I, I, I think, I mean, there's a whole aspect we should just do an Against Me episode, really. Um, but there's also <laughs> an aspect of, I read a, Dan Ozzy sort of has this, uh, interview. I think they went on tour with some other band when they were, and they they were not particularly nice people to these other bands they were on tour with. Um, well, against me, weren't? Yeah, there was like a cockiness to them apparently. No, oh, and uh, I like can a, remember so, a forum post calling calling Laura Jane a sniffed up. <laughs> oh shit! I said the word. <laughs> oh. oh, you twat. Oh, no. Right, I've got to download and edit this now. I'm right, glad it what wasn't me. I'd be very that? aware of the C word. <laughs> I'm genuinely disappointed with myself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, but they weren't particularly um, sort of gracious um, in their slot, and, um, and they wound up the other bands quite a lot in a way that wasn't taken as particularly friendly. Um, but you know, I don't think they were like that to the people they would go and see. But they also like there's an interesting aspect to them, which is Laura Jane Grace has this, you know, she brings this. She is very much in this traditional write what you know songwriter. So the fact that she's brought out a, a song about this. What was it a uh, song about how, you know you're basically a favorite hoodie and um in a in a way that you could take it as a advert for adidas but it's very much like in that write what you know sort of thing and so if you're not if you don't connect directly to what she is going through at that time and i think this is the thing is that when you are that underground band and you're going through that underground you write about that underground people connect to that immediately there's and so when you stop singing about that and you start singing about your relationship with 
your band being commercialized and put through the marketing and all these sort of things. There's sort of a disassociation of when you're when you're on the you know, there's a disassociation when you're in the club to sort of go, oh, I don't really know what it's like to be courted by major labels. And I'm not saying that they were wrong to sing about that. I'm just saying that there's there's a there's an unfortunate like something's lost in translation in a way. Um, I, I would love tra- to carry on talking about this because Yeah. I've got so so many things to discuss on that, but we're going to have to move on. But I do recommend that. I will put the link and I'll send it to you again. It's, it genuinely is well worth listening to. It's, it's a really good episode because it's not just it's not just a love letter and Frank Turner toured with Laura Jane and, and against me. It's, it's, it's very, very good. I was really impressed. Um, right, so we need to move on to the next song because we are running out of time and I need to stop saying that in episodes, but fuck it, here we go. Charles Mingus from the album The Great Concert of Charles Mingus and the tune is uh, Fables of Balbus and I include I just put that album up recently uh, it is recorded in Paris and it's an interesting one I don't think they ever intended to release it and the one that they did release officially the big one uh, isn't as well reviewed as this more bootleggy one and mm. um, yeah it's like this seven songs on it and some of them you know they're on the records on on albums they're sort of four minutes eight minutes sort of thing and on these live versions they span out and they spin out into like being 26 minutes and it just shows you they also had the so there was a saxophonist uh on it called eric dolphy who is uh becoming one of my favorites to seek out who died not from any like uh, issues of like ja- drug abuse, but and more like um, you say jazz issues like heroin. Yeah, no, he was teetotal. Apparently, he he died from misdiagnosed or undiagnosed um, diabetes. Oh shit! He sounded like he sound, He's like a you know I don't know. He's one of those musicians when you hear him, you you. That he really stands out, and um, it's a great live album, and it just shows you why I think jazz really does work well as a live album because you do get exactly this thing of like guys taking a twenty-minute song or a, eight, a four-minute song and spanning it out to be twenty-six minutes, and it doesn't get boring, and they don't lose, and you know the skill of this stuff, and they don't lose focus of the power of the song, and, and you can it's hear, only going you can hear within Charles Mingus and his relationship with the drummer. They're sort of playing with each other with tempo. They're sort of sort of challenging, and uh, yeah. And you can also I also love listening to Charles Mingus sort of vocalize things. He know you know when he thinks something's good is when he shouts something. I love that. I, I really, really that that's such a wonderful thing to hear. And performances like that are only going to happen like that once. So yeah, that that's a that's a cracker. I'm, I'm, there's one of many things I'm going to look up. The next one, I the next track, I was trying to think about songs 
that made it feel like you were there. And I couldn't find the one I wanted, so I'm going to have to play this. First of all, with the caveat, uh, this came up in the, the Marv Gadji episode that, that we did recently. One of the most horrible songs ever written. I mean, it is unrelentingly vile. Um, oh, it's bleak. But, oh, it's just, it's just horrible. But that hearing that made me want to go and... That, sorry, that was the Sex Pistols with what they put on a B-side as buddies, but clearly bodies. Um, that made me want to go see the Sex Pistols, and I did go see them at Crystal Palace, um, which I've talked about on a, another episode. But I wanted to choose that because the when I took my wife, or you and I took took my wife to see Against Me at Camden Electric Ballroom, one of the things that really sh- surprised her is that the crowd was almost as loud as the band was singing along. And the track I wanted to find was anything by... Do you remember we went to go see Black Sabbath at Hyde Park? Oh, yeah. And the crowd was singing the riffs, which was just so cool. So that's it. That's the only reason I chucked that in, um, just because when I saw for that vibe, really. When I saw Metallica at Reading Festival, um, which was the best time, and the only time, I can't be bothered to see them again. It's not going to get better than that. <laughs> can't be but, bothered. Um, the crowd was singing the solos as well. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, that's it was awesome. really like, <laughs> it was great. And the harmonies and all this, it was like... Yeah, that's cool. That's wonderful. Right, so I'm going to play the next track. So we are we have got to whip along because we've got some letters we need to get through. So here you go. Send me to cry for all the reasons you have to die. Don't ever ask you love of me. Go for it, Sam. Uh, that was uh, Nirvana with Jesus Doesn't Want Me For or Don't Want Me For Sunbeat. Uh, and with 10 year old this... Dave Grohl on drum on bass. <laughs> he looks so that. young, He's, he is playing bass in that. I'm not just being a dog. Um, he affects because uh, Chris never said it's playing the accordion on it, or something yeah, like that. that's right, yeah. Um, and um, because that's a cool instrument. Um, yeah, more 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 squeeze box. Is that the same thing as an accordion? No, I think squeeze box. I think they're related. I think they're related. Okay, uh, but it's just I, for me, it was the first live album that really didn't feel like you know. It's like it's you're not just getting repeats of what they did in the studio. You're getting something completely different from what they did in the studio, and um, there's. Uh, yeah, and it just sort of, and I also really admire Nirvana for showcasing, I would say, showcasing their music from other people um, on such a massive stage. And it's a great live album. It's one of the best live albums, in my opinion. And it's a great performance. And um, 
yeah, I couldn't really, you know, can't really include this list without that. And I can't listen to Meat Puppets and think, I wish Meat Puppets had done that album with Kurt Cobain singing for them. So if Jesus doesn't want me for a second, why are you mentioning the Meat Puppets? Um, is that not one of theirs? They Meat Puppets... I know, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, two of the songs on Unplugged are by the Meat Puppets. And they are... Oh. Uh, God, they must have done well for royalties from that. You would hope so. That, well, that album was huge. One, one of the things I, I'm pleased you chose that album. Go on. Um, yeah. The Meat Puppet guitarist, Chris and Cook, uh, Kirkwood, um, are played on some of the uh, tracks. And uh, let's see. No, Jesus doesn't want to for sunbeams for the Vaselines, for a Scottish band. Oh. Um, are they Vaseline? Yeah, Vaseline Scottish band. The uh, Meat Puppet songs are Plateau, which is great. I love that riff, actually. That'll be my next riff of the week. Oh Me and Lake of Fire. Three, wow. Yeah, and then, you know, like, you count the... They play 14 songs and one, two, three, four. Just over, maybe just over half are Nirvana songs. The rest are covers. The second uh, track tonight related to the Foo Fighters. Tonight? What am I on about? Where are you? Because Chris, Chris Steif, what's he's called, was in No Use for a Name, and he went on to, well, he was in Foo Fighters at the same time um, as, as that was recorded. But I, I'm really pleased you chose that, because I remember at the time, no one thought that recording was actually going to happen, because it was unplugged, MTV unplugged, and Eric Clapton had, I think you could say, a surprise hit with his. And the Nirvana one, they were under a lot of pressure to get it done. And they just kept saying no, because that they were very, very particular about what they wanted to do. And at the time, you weren't allowed anything electric. And they were like, well, we're going to use electric stuff. I knew like, it's unplugged, but they did it entirely on their own terms. And I, I remember being as a very as a young man being really fascinated by that, that they were so bloody minded about it in the face of their fans, record labels, everyone just wanted them to get on with it. They're like, nope. It took someone like 18 months to negotiate how they were going to do it. So good on them. Right, my final choice um, is going to be about some of the worst aspects of live albums and... I nearly didn't choose this. It's going to be some of the worst aspects of live albums and audiences. Can you guess the band? Oh, it's very familiar, all that. But go on. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ah. That's the intro from their Live at Hyde Park album. I, I was there. I was there because someone I, I used to work with, a friend I used to work with, said, oh, I've got a spare ticket if you want to go. And I was like, yeah, all right. And then he was like, well, I'm working in London that day, so would you mind taking my kids in for me? <laughs> so, so I did. Who I get on really, really well with and still do now. But not particularly interested in Red Hot Chili Peppers. 
only two times I've seen them. I saw them before that at V Festival, and that's the only time I've been at a festival and seen a woman try to rip a man's throat out for walking in front of her, which you just don't see. She literally grabbed his his Adam's apple with her nails. And well, went, you know, I know I was one of those people who I like two foo, uh, two red up chili peppers albums. I don't like any foo Um I like two red up chili peppers albums, uh, Blood, Set, Sugar, Magic. And um, California, not Californication. Oh, what's the one that they did before that? They did an album with the guitarist of. Um, oh God. Well, well speak, speaking of guitarist, that that the audience was horrible at Hyde Park. A horrible bunch of man childs, and it was the blokes. It wasn't. I didn't see any any grief from any women who were excited to the point of almost pissing themselves at seeing red hot chili peppers but also had no idea how to be in a crowd yeah if you're in in a crowd you will get pushed past there's a constant flow of people trying to move around you know that's just what happens don't try and start fights over it you twats you know what i have always found i'd say sort of punk rock and metal crowds so much nicer than sort of mainstream mm. pop band like to the extent that the blur crowd when i saw them at Hyde park ball bags a lot i've heard and, that from so many people and yeah i can well imagine that red option peppers do not attract good and nice people but um i'm so, gonna have to give you so some the other the other red option peppers i'm like is one hot minute which they recorded with the um Navarro, uh, who was the James Addiction guitarist. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I am interested in seeing that. I, it was mostly the crowd. It wasn't really the band. I like that. I'm going to have to. I can't fault Flea for all the other shit. I can't fault Flea. He's cool. I'm going to have to give you some pluses before I start to go on about the minuses there. The pluses from that day was the support act was James Brown. For which I'm That's forever going to be great. Though, isn't it? The fucking I'm James forever Brown. Go- going to be. I know, but I'm forever going to be grateful to the Red Hot Chili Peas for, for not only booking James Brown, but allowing him to use the PA. Because the first band on, I can't even remember what they're called, but we were quite close and you couldn't hear them. And I fucking hate it when that bands are still doing that. I saw a, I saw a Queens of Stone Age actually at Hammersmith Apollo a few years ago, and they did that to the support band. Like, don't be twats. And I know particularly Josh Helmy from Queens of Stone Age complained about bands, Metallica doing that to him when he was in Caius. So don't do it. All right, so that's one plus. James Brown, great, marvellous, lovely, well chopped. I saw that. And the second plus I've got to say is seeing John Frusciante play because he's a joyous guitarist to watch. Absolutely brilliant. But the negatives were he played about a third of the night was him playing his own stuff while Anthony Clitoris went off stage to get oxygen or whatever he does because he can't sing more than two or three songs in a go. And the John Frisk stuff, I was completely captivated by. And a lot of it was just him and his guitar. So when the live album came out, I was like, I'm going to buy that because that stuff was cool. Of course, none of that's on the live album. Oh, there's, there's, a, there's, a, he's a, there's a guy on YouTube, what's he called? He does, he's great. We should probably ask him to be on this if we say yes. Um, who really shits on the Red Oak Tree Peppers in the most wonderful way. and um, What's he called? I don't want to go too much of a tangent, but have you seen The Good Place? 
uh-huh. there's a, a Netflix series called The Good Place with Ted Danson and and other people. And the whole theory oh, is you uh, get to the yeah, end of, yeah. you get to the end of your life and you get plus points and minus points and too many minus points end you up in hell. And they they show a moving thing of what the minus points are, the things that will instantly put you in hell. And one of them is go has been to a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert. Yeah, <laughs> instantly put you in hell. Okay, I'm going to link you. Hold on. There is a guy called Pat Finity, and he had a thing for a while called "What Makes This Song Sing." Uh, what makes this song stink? Uh, oh no, I know the guy. You know, yeah. Oh. Uh, Oh god! I won't be able to look at it now because my computer will fall on its ass. I'm gonna send you a message and just add this to the show notes. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, right, I'm gonna click on that and I hope my computer doesn't crash. Right, hey, it didn't play either, which is good. Right, so that's we're gonna to have to conclude the live album part with no conclusion, and we need to move on to letters now. The first letter we thought was really nice. I got a message from Steve Scanner. So Steve Scanner is someone who used to live in Ipswich and did a zine called Scanner, which I absolutely loved. He was a real movie movie uh, movie geek as well. It was just a brilliant zine. But he moved to New Zealand, I don't know, 10 years ago? Periodically hear from him. And I got a message from him. He just said, with regards to the Marv Gadge episode, he said, that was a great listen and watch. But he's amazed that Marv has never read Please Kill Me. Oh. And he's amazed that, that I've never listened to a Clash album all the way through, both of which are true. I will just say, Steve, I did send Marv a copy of Please Kill Me. I literally finished the recording, bought him a copy and sent it to his house. (laughs) Because if you like punk, especially if you like the sort of 70s New York punk, which Marv very much does, you've got to read that book. I would would add, actually, I would add to that. I would add that you should, you know, everybody who has read Please Kill Me also read the, um... my mind is going to go, Andrew. (laughs) What's it called? We talked about it a few weeks ago. The, book. Yeah, book. By... <laughs> uh... Come on, you can do it, Sam's brain. Sam's brain, listen to me. I'm going to go close mic. Go on, get those juices flowing. Uh... Yeah, this is the woman. Um, Jane County. And her book. Oh right. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. She was. She was really there, and she was sort of, you know, one of the innovate innovators, really, of the New York uh, crossover with the transgender scene, uh, which was very important, of course, to New York Dolls. She was friends with Dee Dee Ramone, who apparently uh, kept exposing himself to her. <laughs> but I think Dee Dee Ramone exposed right, himself Dee to Dee. everybody. Unintentionally, half the time, probably. Yeah, I mean, apparently he 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 had a particularly big penis. Oh, really? Yeah, but apparently <laughs> right. uh, he was caught. Uh, this is a story that she tells. Jane County tells. Um, he showed it to her when he was caught having a. He went down to fifty third and third, which is where you know um, the the gigolos went and picked up a uh, a client and took him back to his place. And apparently, his girlfriend at the time walked in on them and tried to cut off the penis. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And he had scars and he was showing Jane County the scars. Oh, God. That, that book, the Ramon, <laughs> that whole scene is just 
it's crazy yeah you know that's only the stuff we've heard about but right so thank you very much steve scanner if you're listening to this episode um it was just wonderful to the, the podcast has kind of brought brought people out now we do have an email from rodica broomhelder but i'm gonna put that to one side for now because we've got an email that's prioritized real people not the ai it's, overlords it, yeah <laughs> now this has come on a pdf and it's got it's got performance note at the top <laughs> In in square brackets at the top of the PDF, I'm so amused it's a PDF and I can't even put into letter Y, uh, put into words Y, I can't even speak. It says, to be read out in a nasal whine denoting pedantry. <laughs> okay, you ready? <laughs> Dear sirs, whilst listening to your Beat Motel podcast on the 30th of October relating to drummers and their otherwise inaudible additions to popular famous songs, <laughs> I chanced upon an inaccuracy regarding the inclusion of Car Trouble Part 2 by Adam and the Ants. This is from a real person. While Dr. Sam was indeed correct in saying that the drummer playing on the original 1979 album version was one Dave Barbarossa, the version you actually played was the single version recorded in 1980. This single was a re-recorded version of the song after two of the original ants, the aforementioned Barbarossa, Barbarossa, Barbarossa and guitarist Matthew Ashman had been poached by Malcolm McLaren to form Bow Wow Wow and original bassist Andy Warren had left to join the monochrome set and was completed as a part of a contractual obligation to do it records. The drummer on this new single version, as you played, was none other than Mr. John Moss, later of Culture Club and credited on the sleeve to Terry 1 and 2. A highly amusing nom de plume, I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> I would appreciate that you could make good on this inaccuracy in a future podcast and endeavour to minimise further mistakes. Yours, Mr. Arthur Spite, Seven Lambs Death Cottages, Chertsey. Oh, I think that's one for you to respond to, Sam. Uh, well, I didn't. I wasn't the one who... I only said the wrong... Uh, I only pointed out the... the but I, I thought Andrew would pick the one from the album, not the single version, and he picked the single version. So that's his fault. It's my fault. Okay, Mia culpa. I'll take that on. Thank you, Mister Arthur Spite. <laughs> Seven lambs death cottages. What lambs death? Oh man, where is Chertsey? I don't know why I'm even asking that. Right. We're we're running over time, so I need to get on to Rodica Broomhilder's email. And now this is this is an email about the drummers episode. But he also appears to mention the episode that I did with Stuart Bowditch, which which I absolutely loved. He's a wonderful human being. Right, are you ready for this? Going to do a stretch, get into character. If you're not listening to the to the Beat Motel podcast before, Rodica Broomhilder is our AI generated super fan. He loves us. He loves us so much. So the subject of Rudica's email is harmonic misadventures and wheatfield woes. Now, before I read this, he has sent a picture of himself, Sam, which I'm going to send to you now. And before I read it, you can describe. This time I've made sure I sent it to you rather than my mortgage advisor. Uh, so have you got that picture that you sent? Yeah, he's, he's in a field of wheat. Yeah. He has uh, got... Uh, I would say that's his Doctor Who costume on, and he is getting quite intimate with uh, sound equipment. <laughs> getting intimate? Not in a D.D. Ramon Scar type way. Maybe in a D.D. Ramon Scar type way. 
We we can't see below right. the waist, so it could it could all be off, and it's got to be balancing Very on something. True. It can't just be balancing on weakness sound equipment. That wouldn't make sense. I will. Um, I've just realised this must mean he has a friend or a very long selfie stick, because uh, how else is he sending pictures of himself? I think. I think he. I think he probably. I think he probably takes around a stand. He seems like that sort of person. He does seem like that kind of. Oh, and he said that word again. Um, he appears to have lost his grey hair as well. He must have got some just for men or something because he had grey hair in the previous episode. We listeners, we will include this picture on. The show notes on the website. I can't, unfortunately, include it on the show notes that are on Spotify or Apple or whatever, but go look at beatmotel.co.uk and you'll see the wonderful picture. Right, here we go. Subject line. Harmonic misadventures and wheatfield woes. I've already done that, haven't I? I'll just read it now. My chair's really squeaky. You can hear it. Right. Dear Virtu... Oh, man, I'm getting thirsty. Dear Virtuosos of Vibration at the Beat Motel... I've recently immersed myself in the symphonic journey of your field recording episode. What an expedition it was, though I must confess the absence of Dr. Sam's rhythmic repartee left a noticeable void, akin to a silent rest in a vivance moment. Vivance? Vivace? Moment. Movement. Andrew, while your solo performance was akin to a virtuoso's bravara, what the fuck is this? Right. Rest in a vivance. Does this mean anything to you, these words? So I'm out of character now. So, do these words mean anything to you? Um, I mean, most of it's just sounds. It's that's what AI works with. <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm assuming it's trying to be, trying to mention like types of music performance. Anyway, let me go back into character. <sighs> Andrew, while your solo performance was akin to a virtuoso's bravura, the symphony of your combined energies was sorely missed. Now, on to the heart of the matter. Andrew, your quip about the basis existential crisis and misdetuned chaos was a true guffaw inducer. It led me down a rabbit hole of pondering. If you orchestrated a symphony of musicians and each bewilderingly wielded instruments were tuned to their own whims, what would the delightful dis- dissonance be dubbed? I tender the harmonic anomalies as a suggestion. Are we uh, eagerly awaiting your creative decree? Um, uh, I just, what the hell is he on about? I didn't listen to He's, something. It was very good. My favourite BBC, one of my favourite BBC podcasters or radio shows is, uh, of course, um, The Listening Service. And he did uh, a very interesting episode recently about um, alternative tunings. Alternative tunings, right, cool. Yeah. Um, and And saying that, um, different instruments. Uh, was it this? Was it listening service? Is that the thing, the sort of thing the listening service would do. Basically, um, different instruments sort of resonate at different naturally, particularly acoustic instruments resonate at different. You know, are easier to play at different uh, tunings. So, um, so, uh, and you get. You know, and you also play things differently when the strings are easier to play. And so it's just sort of exploring the ideas of, uh, of alternative tunings and how they create differences in uh, performance and um, and also <laughs> composition. I've got to let the cat out, Sam. You pad for a bit. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, let's go and listen. 
listen to the listening service. Very good podcast. Much more, um, much more mature than our nonsense. Look at this cat. And Andrew is walking away, and he's wearing. Laura Jane Casey would be, would be pick out the pick out the the underwear from your pants. <laughs> right, I look forward to hearing what what you just said there. So, yeah, you have a bit of a wedgie, Andrew. Um, no, I'm just might mess myself. Um, I've been sitting down a long time and I need the toilet. Right, so I, I assume he's talking about something about the drummer episode there, but I'm just going to move on. I'm going to read the next part because it's directed at Stuart Bowditch. And uh, here we go. Uh. And what fortune to have Stuart Bowditch in the mix, a maestro of the ambient and abstract. Stuart, your recounting of forward, field recording escapades was a revelation. However, I must air my befuddlement. Upon your recommendation, I endeavoured to set up my vintage recording ensemble amongst a local wheat field, envisaging the golden sheaths as nature's own sound baffles. Alas, the pastoral setting envisaged the golden... Alas, the pastoral setting proved perilous, as my prized equipment suffered an onslaught by the local rodentia, clearly mistaking my gear for an avant-garde granary. Could you elucidate as to how you safeguard your own apparatus from such agricultural adversaries during these field recordings? Now, I'm I'm Andrew again here. Um, I sent that part of the message to Stuart Bowditch, who has a reply. This is all getting meta. This is is starting to just kind of run itself. So Stuart Bowditch is like an AI personality as well. No, Stuart, no, Stuart Bowditch is entirely real. I can tell you listen to all our episodes. So Stuart replied, Hello, Rudka. Thanks for getting in touch. It looks like you have a lot of kit there. Are you sure you need it all? I suggest refining what you actually need to take and attaching that to a tripod to keep it off the ground. If you do need to take all that kit, then consider purchasing a noise table from Supermerger, as that will keep your prized equipment far above the reaches of rodent teeth and hands. Right, I might have to unpack some of that. Supermerger's a, a really good friend. He's on. I did a. I went to Rotterdam to interview him for this very podcast. But we're also taking the piss out of a company called Teenage Engineering. Have you heard of them? They make synths and stuff, which are very good, but really expensive. And they released a noise table, which is basically a camping table that they've designed for using for for live performances. And it's like a thousand pounds or something. But there you go, Carl. We are so far over time. But I'm still going to read the rest of these. Oh, crap, I ought to check my calendar, actually, and check I'm not supposed to be doing something else. Sorry, Sam, I'm just going to... That's okay. I've got messages. Uh, messages now going back to work, and he's forgotten to take the podcast off, and we're just going to sit here and watch him work for the next few few hours until his wife oh, t- t- or daughter calls him to leave us. <laughs> and we're back. Right, we are back. So, back on with Broomhilda, Rudika Broomhilda. And Dr. Sam, your drummer humour struck a chord, or perhaps a drumhead with me. As a culinary and musical enthusiast, I pondered over pizza and percussions. If a drummer were to set up a drum kit only using pizza boxes of various sizes and densities, what genre of music do you think would be best complemented by this saucy percussion setup? Could deep dish beats be the next thing, or is crust punk more apt? God. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sam's just covering his face. Just <laughs> no. Well, you know, there's an aspect where uh, people might say that the sound of the drums and synthanger are basically made up by cardboard boxes or trash cans. Um, <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe misguided um, 
midlife crisis albums would suit that sort of thing. I've got to say, I was kind of impressed by the crust punk mention. That's like the first thing in the in any of Rudica's e- emails that might actually be slightly humorous. And, and, and you know, yeah, grudgingly, actually, quite witty. <laughs> Begrudgingly, right. So this is this is a long email. This 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 episode from uh, Rudicum. I've championed your podcast as essential soul sustenance. I'm going to have to dial this back a bit, aren't I? I'm going to have to just like tell him to wind his fucking neck in. I've championed your podcast as essential soul sustenance to every acquaintance within earshot, asserting its place as a staple in the diet of discerning audiophiles. Forge ahead on your melodious path, sirs, for you command the undivided attention of the enthusiastic, albeit recently rodent-thwarted devotee, in harmonious anticipation, Rudica Broomhilda, seeker of the sonic sanctuaries and defender of the vintage gear. I'm afraid there's more. P.S. Dr. Sam, your absence was akin to missing a downbeat in a Baroque masterpiece. May your Italian sojourn be as enriching as your auditory embellishments are to our eager ears. <laughs> See, I thought Sam might have frozen, but I just saw him blink. He's just not moving. It's because at the beginning of the Bowditch episode, I said you're in Italy. I so, was in Italy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was telling the truth. He doesn't. He doesn't miss much, does he? If there is any Italians listening, please just ask them why they don't in, uh, invest in a new Pisa Airport. It's a fucking shithole. The rest of the rest <laughs> of Tuscany is lovely. Even even Pisa is nice, uh, which is not a nice, to be a that nice review. The airport's awful. <laughs> if anybody's going to go to Italy right, on holiday, on. I recommend you either fly to Milan or Rome and get the train up. And on that note, we probably ought to wind it in because we're 20 minutes over time. Yeah. And w- where else do you want to go on a middle-class holiday? On a middle-class holiday? Yeah. Where would the most middle-class holiday place be? Milton Keynes? <laughs> <laughs> slough slough may bombs put rain on slough if anybody's right, listening I'm gonna to go. this at this point go and do something better with your life 